This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to Why Is Everyone Yelling with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I'm so grateful you are here today. Today, my guest is Ellen Broughton. She's a licensed psychologist and child neuropsychologist. She is the author of the new book, Bright Kids Who Couldn't Care Less, How to Rekindle Your Child's Motivation. The book was also forwarded by Cheryl Sandberg. No big deal. Uh, This conversation with Ellen is a good one. We talk about what even is motivation and what are some things we can do as parents to help our kids feel self-motivated rather than putting a million things on their schedule and expecting them to do this, this, and this. One of the resounding themes I've noticed of this podcast since I started it a couple years ago is asking our kids lots of questions. I've been trying really hard to do that. And I almost feel like if I could take anything away from this entire podcast, the over 100 episodes we've recorded, it would be that, to stay curious and ask questions. Ellen also has a book called Love the Kid You Have, Not the One You Wish You Had. Wow. Hey, I know you're going to enjoy this one with Ellen. She was such a great guest. If you do enjoy it, will you share it on social media or with your circle of friends who you think might be interested in this type of podcast? Um, You can tag us, why is everyone yelling on Instagram, and me personally, lindsayhine626. And of course, when you leave us a rating and review, that's a huge way potential new listeners can find us. All right, before we get started with Ellen, I want to let you know about this Lash Serum by Hello Skincare that I've been using. Holy moly, it is a game changer. You can get healthier, longer lashes when you use the Lash Therapy. It is a serum by Hello Skincare. It says, see the difference in 60 days. I saw the difference in about two weeks time. It is crazy how well it works. I've been using it for about three years now and also my mascara just applies so much better. You gotta check it out. Go to helloskincare.com. Use the code LINDSAYH20 for 20% off your first order. That's helloskincare.com. Use the code LINDSAYH20 for 20% off your first order. All right, friends, enjoy my conversation with Ellen. All right. Well, today on the podcast, we have Ellen Broughton on the show. Welcome to the show, Ellen. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm really excited that we just connected that you live in Boston because I just got home from Boston last night. I know. It was a marathon. It's very. It was a very exciting day in Boston for lots of reasons. Do you spectate? Do, like, do you go out for the marathon as a Bostonian? Sometimes I do. It depends if I have a friend who has a house on the marathon, which I have in the past had friends who had houses right on the road. So it's it, it's such a fun day in Boston. So this year I went by myself and sometimes I have my husband with me or whatever, but I was like walking down the streets, like I was walking down Newberry and Beacon and I it was a beautiful day on uh, Saturday and Sunday. And I was just like, I feel like I'm in a movie. Like 
Days like this make me think I could live in Boston, but then I remember about the winters and I think maybe I couldn't. <laughs> it's really, the winters are terrible. They really are for three months of the year. It's terrible. And, but, but those beautiful spring days and summer days are fantastic. So, so I, you take the good with the bad. So Ellen, tell us a little bit about your history and your work. Uh, you have a PhD and are you, you're a psychologist, right? I am a psychologist. Okay. And I mostly, my clinical practice is mostly neuropsychology. So I evaluate kids for learning differences, attention issues, um, autism spectrum kinds of issues. So as part of that, I see lots of different kids with lots of different issues. And I also teach at Harvard Medical School and... Um, I wrote a new book, which I know you want to hear about, too. So I've done a lot of writing for parents. I feel like it's really important for me to take the information that I have in my professional realm and translate that information to parents. Yeah, the book, Bright Kids Who Couldn't Care Less. Gosh, I love this because um, I think what we want more than anything as parents is for our kids to find something they're passionate about and go after it and be excited about it and, you know, when we see our kids sitting around playing video games and not wanting to get off the couch or do this or that, it's like, ah, oh, where did I go wrong? What did I do? So we're definitely going to talk about that today. Um, what piqued your interest though? Like when did in your life were you like, I, this is what I want to specialize in? So, well, in neuropsychology, in that field, I really became interested because I started out as a special education teacher. So as a teacher, I was like, well, I want to know more about the students on a more individual, personalized level. And so that's why I went into clinical psychology. And I also did, you know, a fair amount of therapy and, and the sorts of things that we think about when we think about what psycho child psychologists do. But I really landed in this area because it's sort of a cross of child development and learning differences and education. So I like, that's kind of like my favorite area within education and, and psychology and, and child development. And then I became interested in this topic because I was hearing lots of parents say what you just said, which is my child's not motivated, not seemingly motivated about anything. I'm worried about them. And I was seeing more and more kids come into my clinic who didn't have an issue with learning, who didn't have an issue with attention, whose parents were just saying, he, I don't know what's wrong with him. He seems unmotivated. Can you tell me what to do? And I didn't really know what to do. So that's kind of how the book started. The idea for it started at least. Okay. Let's, can we talk a little bit about learning differences? I, it seems that a lot of adults these days are getting diagnosed with um, ADHD. And I, often say, I, th I think if I were to do like a clinical diagnosis and went in, I, I think I'd probably have some, some characteristics of someone that has that. Um, and it's interesting because my husband is like, you know, he's, he was always the kid that could like sit in class and just pay attention and not even have to study very hard, but get really good grades on, on tests as, as long as he paid attention a little bit, like mm -hmm. he absorbed it. Um, and I feel very opposite of that. So I'm curious, just like, what something like that even looks like with getting diagnosed versus like a kid versus an adult? So in an adult, so first of all, ADHD is, is really a developmental childhood diagnosis, meaning that it starts in early childhood, sometime before the age of 12, before puberty. So it's something that that's the one thing we want to hear when we're thinking about an adult who's wondering if they have ADHD, did they have those symptoms 
early in development or is it something that started later? And if it's something that started later, there's probably a different cause, like being overwhelmed, having too much on your plate. In very older adulthood, it might be just, you know, the aging process, but that's not typically what it is for somebody in their, you know, late 20s, 30s, and 40s who are wondering. So that's one of the things we want to look at. And the other thing that happens in people who were diagnosed with ADHD as children is that as as they age, they exhibit fewer of the symptoms of hyperactivity and impulsivity, but those symptoms of inattention and sort of disorganization tend to linger. So in an adult, you're not going to seem like you're hyperactive, although some adults do describe themselves as hyperactive, like I'm just always tapping my foot or I feel like I'm driven by a motor. But for the most part, what you're going to see is an adult who can't finish things, can't attend to different things, seems disorganized and and overwhelmed. So here's what my thoughts are on this like um, learning spectrum or whatever you want to call it. Um, So I have four kids and it's like when you think about how different each of each of these kids are and how different their motivations are, what they're interested in. um, For instance, maybe one of them is a little bit like their dad and can sit in school and pay attention and it's, you know, no big deal to them. And then you've got some that are a little bit more like me. Um, so how do we even enter these conversations with our kids about that motivation, knowing that they're all so different? Well, I think you brought up the first important thing is that we have to talk to our kids about it. And oftentimes motivation is something that we don't talk to kids about other than to say, why aren't you doing this? You're, you're not performing at a level, you know, you're, you could be so good at this and you're not, or you're watching too many video games. We don't ever open the discussion in a way that sort of values them as different learners and different humans. And so that's the first thing we need to do is start to talk with them about the sorts of things that they really love to do. So one of the things I talk about in the book is this, this triad of aptitude, practice, and pleasure, what I call the parenting app. And to be motivated, I feel like we need to be sort of in the in the middle, in the sweet spot of those three things. So aptitude is like thinking about what is it that we're good at or what, what kinds of things are, are our kids naturally good at. And some of the things that we just talked about in terms of like learning differences and you know that has to be taken into account too. But a learning difference usually comes with a positive aspect too. You know, there, there's, it's, you know, if you have trouble paying attention, it can also mean that you're pretty enthusiastic about things and you can over attend to certain things that you're really interested in. So we have to keep that in mind. So that's the aptitude. And then the other two areas of, of pleasure and practice, we think about what are the sorts of things that give our kids pleasure and what are the sorts of things we see them doing a lot of that give them pleasure. So we might have kids who spend a lot of time on video games, but that's not overlapping. If you kind of think of those three things as a Venn diagram, that's not really overlapping with aptitude and pleasure. A lot of kids do video games because they don't really have anything else that they can think of doing at the time. And so that's the that's one of the things we want to think about is is where you know where's our child like to spend their time in ways that are in tune with their aptitudes and natural abilities and that give them pleasure. I think that's so interesting because um, most parents will probably resonate with this. 
it drives me crazy when my kids tell me they're bored because oh. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so many things you could do right now. Like be creative. And as my kids get a little bit older, that looks differently, right? The play looks differently um, and how they engage with their friends and all the things and the video games end up being, I mean, they're interacting with friends on their video games, right? They're connecting yeah, with their yeah. friends that don't live right here. Um, so I'm just wondering how those conversations change as our kids get a little bit older. I mean, you're not really talking to your five-year-old about motivation, right? Right. Um, but my oldest is 10. So we're kind of getting to a point where we're finding that we really like soccer and that we're pretty good at soccer. And um, yeah, I'm just curious how those mo those conversations might change as the kids age. I think one of the things you want to do as kids age is get their input more than your, you know, as, when your child is younger, you're really the observer. You are the one saying like, gee, you seem pretty good at soccer. You know, and a five-year-old, you can sort of tell, or you can also tell when your child's not very good at soccer, which <laughs> neither of mine were, were gifted soccer players. We did the soccer thing, but I, but at some point I had to sort of think about, okay, well, this might not meet their needs. So what are some other things we could think about and I can expose them to? As kids get older, they need to self-direct that process more. And yet they still might need a whole lot of help from you. So they might give you a lot of answers like, well, I don't know. Well, I don't know, you know. And so you need to be, like I said, it's still an observer, but you need to present them with options if they can't come up with things on their own. But they also will give you a sense of when it is or what it is they don't care about. And you want to pay attention to that too. Because younger kids, when they're like, I'm bored, it sort of means mm -hmm. like they're sort of played out. Whatever yeah. they were doing, they, they, all right, well, I played that game or we took that to the limit and I don't know what else to do. And that's a way of saying like, I, you know, I need some help in figuring out what to do. But in, as kids get older, there are other things like anxiety and fear uh, that come into play too. And you want to make sure you're talking with them about why it is they don't like something or why it even is that they want to do something too. So I'm, I'm trying to think of a good example for this, or I don't know, maybe you have a good example from your 10 year old. Well, I, I'm curious about you bringing up the anxiety thing because I actually do find with him when he seems to like lose control or, or ha be, have that like bored thing or, oftentimes right before bedtime even where he like feels a little bit out of control about like what this next step is going to look like, how this transition is going to be. I think um, anxiety really is at play with him in particular. I see a lot of those things that he does in, in myself a lot. So that's yeah. interesting to me that the anxiety could be what's causing the like kind of fiddling around, like pacing around the house. Like, I don't know what to do right now. Exactly. Exactly. And it also can, can, be the reason why a lot of kids wind up playing video games. Like yeah. when we're a little anxious about something, uh, we tend to pick up the phone and look totally. at Instagram or get on and uh, get on a maybe not as an adult, get on video games, but some adults do. Yeah. And neither of those things are very really soothing. They might be temporarily self-soothing, but things like Instagram and TikTok can make kids feel this comparison, like everybody else is having this great life and I'm not having it. And video games can be somewhat, you know, anxiety provoking too. 
and and sort of a sensory overload, which doesn't often help us with anxiety. So yeah, knowing that and being able to label those emotions for our kids can be very helpful in controlling that. Because if you're anxious about something, it's sort of hard to find the motivation to do something new or even to find the motivation to do something you really want to do. So we've got to be able to kind of power through some of those normal feelings of anxiety and identify that for our kids so that they're able to sort of pursue the things that they want to do. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking this through with motivation and like how much I want to be like a helper, right? As Especially you mentioned as your kids are younger, like they need some direction there. And also I tend to be a very like figure it out kind of mom. Like I, I would label myself as kind of free rangey in that way, um, in a lot of ways. And so I'm curious as we like go down this conversation of motivation with our kids, we want motivated kids. How much handholding or whatever do we need to do versus like letting them figure it out on their own? Cause there's some beauty in that as well. Oh, I'm, I'm a big believer in, 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 having kids be quite a bit free range. And I think that that's part of the reason why kids are unmotivated is that we don't give them the opportunity to find their own motivation. Mm. And one of the things you said before, you said something about, um, you know, kids are bored and they come to you like, I'm bored. My mom would often say, and people of her generation would often say, well, go make yourself useful. Uh In my generation, we sort of said, well, go find something fun to do. Yeah. But I really kind of feel like we could get back a little bit to go make yourself useful. Like we are motivated by doing things that make us have a purpose. Mm -hmm. And a lot of kids don't have a purpose. And so for younger kids... Doing something that makes them feel like they're responsible is important. So even things like doing chores, which we don't think about being motivational, kind of are because we like to feel a sense of a job well done. Mm -hmm. And when we feel that in one area, we can then apply that to other areas that are more fun or more goal motivated. So even things like taking care of your younger sibling, taking care of an animal, doing chores around the house. For older kids and even young adolescents, I find one of the best sources of finding their motivation is getting a part-time job. Mm. Not necessarily finding their bliss, taking the perfect art class. All of that can be great too. But it's sort of like finding their internal drive that, oh, life is about finding, you know, that purpose, you know, like of feeling responsible. And so weaving that into your life as a mother is an important aspect of building that motivational drive. So kids who are, who are more sort of responsible, not overly responsible, I'm not talking, you know, kids should not be managing a household. And a lot of that happened when I was younger, when I was younger, you know, but some of that we are, we've lost out on as we've managed our kids so much We've left them feeling sort of powerless, which is a really huge demotivator, and not having enough responsibility, which is a really great motivator. Hey, everybody, a quick break here. If you are looking for a great vitamin for your kids and yourself, you got to check out Prevenex. 
Prevenex vitamins and supplements are clinically effective and they promote longevity, performance, and everyday health. A lot of the vitamins that are out there for kids have a lot of crap in them, a lot of sugar in them, and these contain optimal forms and amounts of key vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants that support children, low in sugar from natural sources, free of preservatives, any additives, and junk. And the awesome thing is they donate a bottle of these Supervites to malnourished kids around the world when you purchase a bottle. So great. And you can just get it on subscription. So you just order it and you know it's going to come every month and your kids are covered with a great vitamin. Go to Prevenex.com. Use the code Lindsay15. That's L-I-N-D-S-E-Y-1-5. And that'll save you 15%. All right, friends, back to the show. Okay. So I have to detour a quick second because I have a question based on what you just said about like a lot of that was happening when you were growing up. Yeah. And I've been thinking about this a lot as my kids get a little bit older. I think we uh, go back to our own childhood and we think about how that affected who we became as adults. And I have a lot of feelings of like, oh my gosh, in eight years, my youngest is going to be moving out of the house and what have I done or not done that will affect him when he's 40 or whatever? And I'm curious as a psychologist and someone who just said, you know, that was happening when I was a kid, how you process that and talk to your clients about processing or patients. I don't know what you call them about processing. Yeah, no, this is such an important aspect of parenting. And first of all, I one of the things I'll tell parents like this, because I think what you're sort of saying is, am I doing the right thing, yeah. basically? And every good parent is a guilty parent. Mm. And, you know, so the fact that you're feeling this way is actually a good thing. It means that you are thinking about what it means to be a good enough parent. And when your child is 40, hopefully they'll realize that, you know, no parent is perfect. And that's one reason why our parents seem less wrong. I don't know what the word, right word is as we grow older, because we realize that, you know, humans can just do what we can only do what we can do. But I think it's one of the things that just is a sign of a good parent in a way is questioning, are we doing the right thing? How much can I do? And also, yeah, feeling a, a bit guilty. We need to let go of the guilt, yeah. but also know that that's a good barometer of saying, oh, all right, I'm, you know, I, I'm paying attention to what my kids need. Why is it that moms feel this more? I mean, I'm I'm generalizing and I, I haven't done a study or read a study, but just from talking to my friends and, and knowing how my husband is, if he yells at the kids or something goes this way, like, no sweat off his back. He's not like, oh, I'm going to traumatize them or anything. He doesn't overthink it. He just moves on. Yet we hold this like, oh, I'm doing this all wrong mentality. My husband's a little bit more like my parents. Like I just, you know, did what I felt like I was supposed to do. And that's what it was. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't know of any studies that look at this at all. Yeah. But I think you are exactly right that we as mothers tend to analyze. And I think part of that is, and it's just a fact that mothers hold more of the emotional baggage for the family. We do more of the emotional labor. And that's not universally true. I don't want to stereotype. Of course. But for the most part, we do 
still do a lot of that labor. And so we wind up analyzing that a lot more. It's heavy. It is heavy. It is. And the other part, too, is that for, you know, again, I hate to stereotype this, but moms do spend more time with than dads do. The average mom spends for more most, time yeah. with their kids than the average dad does over the course of a lifetime. And so we have more time to process this stuff. We're, we're just observing more of this. And and we're, we tend to be more attuned to that emotional experience in our kids. Sometimes I'm like, can we share that labor a little bit more, that emotional labor? I but know. it's a gift. You know, it's a gift for the partner or the other person to not, you know, yeah. if they don't feel that. Um, okay, I wanted to circle back then to you were going down a road about a job and things like that. And I know it's different depending on, you know, the activity level that, you know, all the things your kids are involved in. I remember when I was in high school, I did get a part-time job, but when it was cross country season, my mom didn't make me work and then I would pick back up. So I'm curious, like, is there a certain age range that you think is a healthy time for kids to get part-time jobs? It really does depend on the child. And I think what we have to think about more is sort of like responsibility. And responsibility can be as simple as walking to to the store that's close enough. Of course, we want to be safe and every and all of that. But I think we've gone a little bit too far with that over the past three or four decades where we just don't allow kids to do anything on their own, walk in a group to school together. I mean, we're just fearful as parents and we've passed this on to kids. So, so responsibility can start that simple. Um, I think that, you know, 14, 15, of course, 16 is a good age to start a part-time job and a job can be seasonal. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that every child should have a job every week. Like you said, during cross country season, you didn't work. It could just be that during the school year, you don't work, but you work for eight weeks during the summer as a lifeguard. There's, there's different ways of playing with that, but I think it does, it just sort of instill that sense of responsibility, which, which instills a sense of that, intrinsic kind of motivation. And sometimes what happens is kids are working as, you know, mowing lawns or or gardening or something in the summer. They'll be like, I don't want this kind of job. I want a desk job. I am motivated now to go back to school and to do the kinds of work that I need to do to have a totally different sort of lifetime experience. I'm all about the freedom too. Like I remember the first time I had my oldest go into like Starbucks or whatever and just like I'd sit in the car and be like yeah you just go in and order it like you do it yourself I mean I think I I think he was like six and I was like in the car but I'm like you go in and do it go in and see if you can order and I love I love that that made him feel so big yeah no it's great and what's a little bit scary is to think that there might have been some people in the store who were like what's this Worried. kid doing here alone yeah you know, when I I um worked a few years ago as a visiting professor at a university in Prague in the Czech Republic. So I did a I did a lot of observing of kids in Europe. It's very different there mm. than it is here. And I remember one parent was telling me that her she had a 10-year-old and a five-year-old. And I said to her, Oh, that's the same age difference in my kids. And I remember when my youngest was five, that we could kind of do anything. Like yeah. we could travel anywhere. All the hard stuff was over. And 10 and 5 was just this wonderful age range. And She's like, yes, it's great because now I can send them to the park by themselves. I was like, 
oh, well, we wouldn't do that in the U.S. <laughs> I was just talking about we could go to a restaurant with them and, and they both could entertain each other. And, and that was such a different experience for me because to think that at 10 and 5, which when I was a kid, of course you took your 10-year-old sibling, I mean your 5-year-old sibling to the park when you were 10 and you came back before dinner. And yeah. um, that's what you did. And so again, you there was less of that malaise because like, you know, you had to like take care of somebody else or listen to your older sister. And so it's, it is different. I remember having a discussion with people there and they, they were saying too, that things are changing even in the, in places like the Czech Republic or, you know, Amsterdam, there are all these other cities where kids are just kind of um, you see them all the time on the bus on mass transit with their backpack going to school completely alone at at eight, nine, ten, not thought of as anything unusual. But to my eyes, it was. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting. We have like a false perception of how dangerous it can really be and how many bad guys are really out there. I mean, bad things happen, but the likeliness of your kid getting snatched is not high. Um, and I I send my, my kids to the park. And, um, you know, I, I think five is actually in my experience with my kids is really like a, a age where things really start clicking like four, my four-year-old, like mm, you're not crossing the street by yourself. But like, I, I really do think five and that's when kids go to kindergarten usually. Yeah. And a lot of kids are like my kindergartner walks home from school with his brothers by himself a lot of times. And it's a half a mile. And, it's, it feels, and I think it depends on where you live, what neighborhood you live on, what are the streets like and all that. But, um, I do think that we're living in a world of over fear of, you know, what we let our kids do. And I, I try really hard to change that narrative. No, that's great. Cause I think that is correct. Like the data would show that we are way overdoing it in terms of, you know, our child, our kids cannot be out alone. They're, you know, we just can't when really, you know, there are other places and other situations that are very dangerous for kids these days. And being alone, walking to school alone is not is not the most scary uh, place for them. So I applaud you for being the kind of parent who does that because what's scary, and I remember, you know, I when I was parenting, you know, my kids are now both around 30. It was like, that was the start of this kind of mm -hmm. thinking about, I can't leave my child alone. They'll get snatched. They'll be, you know, all of that. And you didn't want to be the parent, the first one who allowed her child to do something. That being said, I remember sending my daughter when she was right around five or six, there was a bakery. She had to cross the street, uh -huh. but we would send her on Saturday mornings to the bakery with the, you know, with money and she'd bring back the croissants. And for her, she still remembers it was one of the happiest times of her life going that, having that feeling so of cool. like, I am going out on my own. And that's, we want to instill that, that sense in our kids. Yeah. And two more things on this and we'll move, we'll move on to expectations and, and motivation and all that. But, um, I know, well, Julie Lithcott Hames, who's been on this podcast, I love what she says, like, show them how to do it, do it with them, watch them do it. And let them go. Yeah. And once you've watched them do it on their own and see like, oh, and e you can even be like from a distance. They don't even yeah. know you're watching. Um, they're showing you like, I know how to do this. And the other thing I think about a lot too is bad things happen and bad things can happen under your watch as well. So when we like over 
watch our kids, like they might climb up and fall down or whatever it is while we're standing right there. Um, yeah. We can't always prevent bad things. So if we can like let go about of that a little bit, I think it releases some pressure and gives our kids independence. Yeah, I think you're right. I, and that gets back to that parenting guilt. Like we just have to sort of let some of that go. We can't protect our kids from, from everything. And yeah. So I, sorry, I get really like excited about that, those kinds of conversations because I'm so passionate about the whole free range thing, but let's, let's detour back to the conversation at hand. Um, let's talk about talking about goals with our kids. When do we introduce goals? What ages? Oh, goals can be introduced at any age, really. Um, but we're not going to call them goals per se. And and goals, I think, have a bit of a dirty, um, you know, connotation uh-huh. that it's like, oh, you know, I've set the goal of losing weight and then I didn't lose weight or whatever it is. And and really goals are, are more of an, I, I kind of like to think of them as an aspiration. And what we want to make sure goals are is that there, there's something that, well, first of all, one of the things we want to ask our kids is, what do we, and ourselves, is what do we want to accomplish? Why is a goal or this particular goal important? Who do we need to sort of be involved in accomplishing the goals? And what are the resources our child needs in order to do that goal? Mm-hmm. So so anytime we're thinking about, okay, we, we, we want to put something in place for our child. We want to make sure that the goal is something that they can attain, but also we're going to give them the support that they can do to do that. So goals are, are as they, as kids get older, we want to make sure that goals aren't something that's dictated to them. So we want it, it to be something that's chosen, even though we know like, you know, like a, a goals are all, all around us. Like the, there's a goal in, you know, finishing the school year, for example, it's unspoken, it's unwritten, but if we want to make the school year better, we can talk to our kids about what it is they want to accomplish. So even in, in a first grader, you can say, you know, what do you want to accomplish in first grade? What are the kinds of things you want to do by the end of this year? And, you know, it can be something like, well, I want to read or I want to read a chapter book or those are the sorts of conversations that we can have at very young ages. So we want to make sure that goals are are talked about, they're chosen, they're not kind of dictated we when we really have something specific in mind we want to make sure that they are specific and clear we want to make sure that goals are are positively framed so you know like oh i need to lose 10 pounds just is never that positive for me but to say you know i'm going to get out and walk 5000 steps a day and listen to a podcast while i'm doing it and it's going to be fun and i'm that sort of thing is is much more of of a positively framed goal. And most important, we want goals to be mastery focused for kids. So something that we think they can master. Mm -hmm. And we also want to make sure that goals are things that are changed all the time. So they've got to be discussed. Goals are, you know, it's again, it's an aspiration, but we don't meet every one of our goals. In fact, it's really common not to. So then the conversation needs to be, well, why didn't that work? Or how do you want to change this? Or, you know, it's so, you know, if if the goal is to, like, I want to be on the soccer team this year, and halfway through, they're like, I don't like this anymore, Mm -hmm. that you have to have that discussion about, well, what's not working? Is it the coach? 
Is it you're not, you know, you don't enjoy it? Is it, but you know, that's when you can start to rearrange the goal to make it more, to, to make it something that your child's learned from. I think I've seen this idea of like having not just your kid, but yourself as well, like spend more time on the things you love and the things you need to work on that you're not very good at. Yet you have to do both, right? Like you, you might hate math, but you got to get through the math. You love reading. Well, that's okay if you spend a lot of time on reading. You probably should. How do we balance that though when say all our kid and none of my kids like to read, but um, all they want to do is like read books, but like we know they need to work on their math and they don't right. want to. I think just having those discussions, just the exact way you described it with your kids is super helpful because to let them know it, that, it, because as adults, we know that, you know, we yeah. all have jobs. Hopefully we have jobs that we, we like, but every job, even one that you love a lot has lots of things in it that you don't really want to do, but you have to do. Yep. And so teaching your child that as an, at an early age is a great life skill. Like, you know, I know you don't like math. What can we do to get the math done that you need to do so that you have more time for, for reading because I'm you're loving the reading and I love that you love reading. But what do we do? How do we handle that? And kids oftentimes can come up with great solutions to that. Like, yeah, I'd rather do the math right away and get it out of the way. Or I'd rather do my reading first and ease into the math. And then as an as a parent, you kind of look at that. Well, did that work? So, all right, let's try reading first. and Or let's try playing first after school before you do your math homework. Did it work? How did it go? And revising those sorts of things with your child, having that as a discussion point and changing it can be a great way for them to learn those skills in, you know, as an adult, which because we need them. Yeah. What about setting expectations? Like, what we expect out of our kids, how does that, I mean, with grades or soccer or I'm just keep using soccer because my kids play soccer, but like whatever it is they're active in, like how do our expectations affect what they do? Oh, I think our expectations are huge. And I, you know, now that I think about it, we, I could have even started with that, that I see lots of parents have these huge expectations for kids you know, just like they start playing soccer, they're going to be a soccer star, they're going to get a soccer scholarship. Um, or I see a child who might have a small interest in something and parents are like, they're going to be the owner of their own business, they'll be the next Bill Gates. All of that actually can really demotivate a child. Mm. So overdoing it with your child, because kids know, like, I, I just started playing. Like I, but I see this happen all the time with parents, and it's because we see our kids, and we're you know we're, we're just thrilled when when a coach says, "Oh, he's got some real talent." Yeah. So I think keeping our expectations in the realm of is this fun for you? It's fun for me to watch you play soccer, for example. Keep it in that kind of realm helps them figure out, oh, do I like this? Is this something that I want to do just because I love the sport? I always think about this because, okay, we'll just use like these like extreme examples of like really good athletes who I always tell my kids like, hey, someone might have a lot of talent and be really good at something. But like if you really want to be really good, you can't you can only rely on your talent for so long. Like you have to work hard and you have to care a lot. And I want them to receive that message, but I don't want them to feel 
pressure. I just want them to see like a realistic picture. Like, hey, Kobe Bryant was really, really good naturally. But like he was really, really good because he worked harder than anybody also. Exactly. There was discipline. He worked hard. And he also, if you look at a lot of, and in fact, I, I researched this as part of the book, looking at some of the people who really excelled in different areas, a lot of them had a more varied and well-rounded life than you think they did. Mm. So this idea that you have to over-practice, over-be year-round in a certain kind of sport was not the way most sports stars had their childhood and adolescence. They played different sports throughout the year. And I can't speak for Kobe Bryant in particular, although <laughs> I kind of remember, like there there were a couple of people I mentioned in the book, whether it was concert violinists or sports stars, they actually had a much more rounded and less of this sort of like corporate sports kind of mentality at age 10, some of them didn't pick up the sport until they were much later. Now, that is harder because in our culture, by the time you're 12, if you haven't already played soccer for six years, you're probably not going to do well on the team. And I think this is something that we also need to change is we don't give kids enough time to explore before they're already specialized in a particular area. We're doing it to ourselves. It's exhausting mm-hmm. and it's yeah. frustrating yeah. because people are developing at different times because of course your 12-year-old is going to be better or whatever at this sport than my 12-year-old if they've been specializing in it for 10 years. But what like what does that look like down the road, you know, once I don't yeah. know, I just feel like I feel like we're doing ourselves a dis- disservice by this. And also, I mean, gosh, if we just really get into it, just the the finances involved and like it's just very unequal mm-hmm. who can throw all their eggs in in those baskets. I mean, like those programs are so expensive and ridiculous and most a lot of parents don't have time to do that or money to invest in it. So it's just like very, very not I hate using the word fair, but, you know, I don't know. It's frustrating. not fair. Yeah, it's not fair. It's not fair from a financial and even, you know, standpoint of just socioeconomic standpoint, but it's not fair to the kid too. It's yeah. just, it's too much too soon. And I have just worked with so many kids who by age 12 are like, I don't even like soccer anymore. I'm a, <laughs> I feel like we're picking on soccer, which isn't fair. I know. We're it just, be a lot of example. other sports too. Gymnastics. But, <laughs> yeah. They're like, I don't like doing this anymore. And then the, what happens is we've got an unmotivated kid who doesn't know what else to do because they've spent so much time in that. And I've even had cases where there have been kids who were good in a certain sport. Let's just say hockey, for example. Terrific hockey player, loved playing hockey, and then had an injury, which and they couldn't play for a year and found themselves significantly you know, behind their peers, depressed, out of their, you know, realm of social, um, you know, the social support. So it, putting all of our eggs in that one single basket is not a good thing, even when it is good, because it's it's um, hard when things go off track and life isn't always perfect and things happen. I mean, that's so true, too. I'm in the running community pretty intensely. And when runners get injured and like they've like 
given so much of their life and energy to running. It's like the end of the world. And it's like, you got to find some more hobbies, man. It is. It is. And to sort of, it totally is when that's been your whole world, your whole social situation. And then think about now as an adolescent who doesn't have a job right. to go to or, you know, kids or, or partners or whatever to, to rely on. It's really tough. Well, let's just wrap this part of the conversation up before we wrap up with end of podcast questions with when we feel like, oh my gosh, they've been so excited about this that they're all into it. And like these sudden decreases in motivation happen. How do we know, like, is this depression? Is this like, he's just losing interest because he needs other things to focus on? Is he worn out? How do we identify what the problem really is? I think this is really a process. Now, are you talking about in a particular, let's say somebody signs up for basketball and in the middle of the season, they're like, I don't want to do this. Or are you talking about more in a global sort of sense? I guess I don't know. It can, well, it can be some of both. So let me talk about if it if it's in the middle of, let's say they, they've been dying to take basketball. They finally are old enough to be on the, you know, team or whatever, and they get halfway through the season and they don't like it. One of the first things you want to do is figure out why. So we mentioned anxiety earlier. Anxiety can be a big issue. It can be a coach issue. It can be a social issue, or it can be that they're just not very good at basketball. Mm. And that's a tough thing. I find that kids, they, they're desperate to do something. It could be even something like they want to take an art class. There's some sort of, and I think about my daughter um, wanted to do at one point in like community sign up for I don't know the community group where you could take classes and she wanted to do dress designing and she couldn't wait to start this class couldn't wait got in the middle of the class and realized she's never going to be a dress designer and it was a huge like narcissistic injury to her that this was she just loved you know this idea and she wasn't very good at it uh-huh. so as a parent you've got to sort of decide is this a talent thing or not and then you have to kind of say well we signed up for this how can we make this I feel like it's really important to follow through with this commitment there still might be something you can learn from this experience I want you to to finish this let's figure out how to make that good if we're talking about and then you don't ever have to take another dress designing class (laughs) at the community rec center again or basketball again But if it's more of a global issue, you want to have those same sorts of conversations, but in a bigger level. Like you want to reflect what it is you're seeing with them. Like for instance, I've been noticing over the last few weeks or months, you've been doing, and you want to give them very clear information about what you've been seeing. You've been spending more time on video games. You haven't been communicating. I haven't seen your friends around the house, whatever it is. You want to reflect that. You want to reflect your own feelings about that. And then you want to open up a discussion on where to go. And that's where that sort of like a goal isn't necessarily like at that point, I want you out of the house for this many minutes a day, but how do we help you get out of this? Because I'm worried about you. And it's not a one-time discussion. It's going to happen, especially if you've got an adolescent, it's going to happen over the course of many days or weeks or even months. And so, yeah. I'm always curious, like, when is it okay to just say, all right, we don't have to finish off the season or, or we don't have to finish the class because obviously there's value in like, okay, we paid for this and like we committed to this, so we're doing it. 
But if something's like just too much and it's like your kid is like so stressed and it's like, okay, what we don't have to follow through with this. Like how do we make those decisions? Yeah. I think anytime a child is truly stressed, it's okay to consciously drop something, but it should be really conscious. It should be, okay, I see that you're really, really stressed here. And you can reflect your own fears. Like, I'm afraid as a parent, like teaching you that it's okay to quit something Mm -hmm. when it gets hard is not the lesson I want you to learn. Mm -hmm. And if that's really what's happening is that it's getting too hard, that's not a good enough reason to quit. Mm -hmm. But there are other stressors, like a bad coach, Mm -hmm. like a peer situation, like a, you know, your child really can't do it. Like I, mm. you know, my son who was the skinniest kid on the peewee football team, but he was desperate to join the football team when whatever it was at Pop Warner football in third grade. I was like, he is going to get killed. He is the youngest. He had a May birthday. He was the skinniest. And I let him try it. And then we realized like, it just wasn't going to work for him. It uh-huh. just wasn't. And so it, if it's really like that, and I think as a parent, you oftentimes have an idea mm-hmm. that this might not be the right fit. And you could say, let's give it a shot. Let's sign up. And, you know, if it doesn't work out, we're going to check in after two weeks. So the, I, I feel like being conscious is the most important part of this, knowing the reason why, laying this out for your child, why you're okay with it this time, and most of the time you're not. That's, those are the important ingredients. Yeah. I love that openness to the conversation. Okay. So the book is called Bright Kids Who Couldn't Care Less. Uh, We wrap up with into podcast questions here. What's something professionally or personally you'd like to do that you haven't done yet? Oh, professionally or personally, I want to go with the personal, which is getting certified in scuba diving. Oh, fun. Where do you do that in Boston? Well, this is why I haven't gotten certified in scuba diving yet, <laughs> because you really—I mean, I've had—I've known a few people who got their open water certificate in the Boston area where the wetsuit does not so interest me whatsoever. Yeah, and I was just about ready to do their their classes you can take in Boston and any city where you get into a tank, but then COVID happened. Yeah, so I want to get—I want to that—that's just a personal goal for me. I love it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Uh, what's the best, most recent book you've read? You know, I read a book of poetry by um, Ocean Vuong, which is um, Time as a Mother. Mm. And it was really beautiful. And I'm not even a poetry reader, but I had read, he'd written a book of, uh, about his mother. It was a memoir that I read. And I was like, okay, I'll try this book of poetry. And it was really beautiful. It was, it's a book of poetry about his mom, actually. Time is a mother. Hmm. It's interesting. Makes me think. Just the title alone makes me think. Yeah. Do you have a kid's book you recommend? You know, my daughter loved this series by Tamora Pierce. And it is about a um, a young girl called Alana. And it's a series. And the girl was like a sword fighter. And my daughter loved this series she wound up becoming a fencer because of this 
series. Oh, wow. And yeah, it's the Iwana series by Tamora Pierce. Wound up doing fencing. Again, one of those things we signed up for in the rec department of our community. Somebody was teaching a fencing class. She wound up getting really into it, being like the captain of the fencing team in college and doing all sorts of things I didn't expect her to do. So yeah. That's um, so cool. Like, and would she ever have done it had she not read that book? I don't think so. She would say she she didn't. It became a major part of her high school experience, too, which I didn't know anything about fencing, like not (laughs) even the the least thing. And she wound up, you know, being recruited for it in college, which was so cool. um, And she was the non-soccer player in our family, like major. (laughs) She would just be off like talking to her friends, like like literally on the sidelines, talking to other parents as well, the, the ball was going back and forth. We realized this is not the sport for her. Uh, that's awesome. Do you have a trip or a place that you recommend going with your family to? So I love the island of Anguilla, which is a small little island in the Caribbean. I'm just a big fan of beach vacations for kids oh, yeah. and families. I just feel like it's such a great time where, you know, speaking of like letting them kind of like play in the sand at your feet or even do things like, you know, my kids like love like snorkeling with me and, and, um, those sorts of boating activities where they can sort of literally take the helm. I, it's just a great experience. So. And what's your last message to leave with our audience today? So my favorite phrase is bloom where you're planted. And I feel like it's the kind of thing where I, I've lived in a lot of different places, but also in your time as a mother, kind of bloom wherever you are planted because wherever it is, you're going to have to repot it and uh, maybe even find different fertilizer and, and in different <laughs> locations. But really, you know, it's such a great honor as a mom to just sort of enjoy the space where you are and where your child is. Thank you, Ellen. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Ellen, for coming on the podcast. It was great talking with you. You all can learn more about Ellen when you go to Ellen Broughton. That's Broughton with two A's. Ellen, B-R-A-A-T-E-N-P-H-D.com. Definitely check her out and check out the book, Bright Kids Who Couldn't Care Less. You can find me. I'm Lindsay Hines 626 on Instagram. Why is everyone yelling is also on Instagram. You can just find us at why is everyone yelling. And uh, if you want to learn more about this podcast and all the shows in our network, just go to sandyboyproductions.com. Thanks so much for being here. And we will see you next week on why is everyone yelling?